Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Also Sport Podcast. We look back at Lewis Hamilton's crucial victory in the Mexican Grand Prix and dig into some of the stewards' decisions that shaped the race. So, a second consecutive victory for Lewis Hamilton in the Mexican Grand Prix ahead of Nico Rosberg as the World Championship heads towards its denouement in Abu Dhabi in a few weeks' time. My name is Ed Straw, the editor-in-chief of Autosport, and to look back on an eventful race, I'm joined here in Mexico City by F1 Racing Deputy Editor Stuart Codling, star of the famous How to Pack a Bag to Travel to a Grand Prix video on YouTube, who I believe is mid-packing as we speak. Yeah, it is on my bed, leaves open like an open book, a story yet to be written actually it's, it, i'm beyond mid-packing it is awaiting only the touchdown of my wash bag and then we will be vamos al aeropuerto as they say around here so we can put some real pressure on your packing if we overrun the running time on the podcast uh, it's it's not just me it's my wife you'll have to answer to oh, that sounds very dangerous i'm also joined by karen chandok who uh, you might know from uh, television and driving about a bit in racing cars karen are you enjoying staying in the hotel that claims to have served the first sandwich in mexico in 1910 that is a brilliant stat. I mean, that almost eclipses the Tara Hawara from Chihuahua band that played yesterday. That was my favorite fun fact of the weekend. And that's absolutely true. Really? The the one thing that disappoints me about uh, the floor we're on at the moment, because I, I think we should point out that we're, we're actually in Ed's bedroom, and somewhat disappointingly, when I walked in, Ed was not sort of dressed in a dressing gown like uh, Noel Coward in the Italian job. But I just, I'd just like to add, I was wearing clothes, though. So I think people <laughs> might get the wrong idea. But uh, your your floor here is tiled, whereas uh, mine, mine uh, the humble third floor, is, is carpeted. And it's actually... Uh, eerily reminiscent of the hotel in The Shining. Anyway, no, I've, I've enjoyed my first time in Mexico. Um, I mean, I, I don't think I have perhaps enjoyed it as much as I should have done because it's quite late in the season and October has been a, a long month for us full-timers, unlike you two who, who rock up every once in a while. Uh, five long-haul races in seven weeks has been a, a tough slog, so I think everyone's kind of ready to go home. But nevertheless, it's always nice to come to a new country. Yeah, I know how you feel, having done the full season many times in in my time. So, Lewis Hamilton victory, a pretty pretty comfortable one, Corinne. 
Yeah, utterly dominant. Um, I think he came here on a bit of a mission because last year, obviously, he got blitzed by Rosberg pretty much all weekend. And, you know, he he mentally checked out. And I think he wanted to show that this isn't a weak track for him by any stretch of the imagination. I think uh, to be ahead in qualifying all the way through. I mean, Rosberg dug it out at the end to get within two and a half tenths, but that was his absolute limit. And Lewis actually had a bit more potential in hand, I think, if you if you look at his lap. So, you know, utterly dominant. And in the Grand Prix, just disappeared up the road. And, uh, you know, I spoke to Pete Bonington afterwards, his race engineer, and he said, yep, we were just managing it. And I think if if he wanted to, that gap could have gone up to sort of 15, 18 seconds, uh, which is, you know, as dominant a performance as we've seen, I think, all season. And it was all weekend long, wasn't it? Codders, obviously, we went up to the turn one, two, three on Friday morning, and you could see the difference. Lewis was much more comfortable. Nico wasn't driving badly, but just a little bit less precise. And you just thought, yeah, this is going to be a Lewis weekend if it keeps going like this. It, it, it was funny that, wasn't it? Turns one, two, three were very, very interesting uh, for an observer to have a look at the the different cars' performances and certainly it, it, it showed you gave you an insight into how difficult the Renaults are to drive they looked like they were towing a caravan but I was kind of wondering more about where Rosberg was at uh, Karun because as, as we observed by uh, watching that sequence of corners and sort of, I popped out for P3 and went down to 4, 5, 6 and then around to the S's and it just seemed like Lewis was just that little bit quicker uh, was, was that all we had to see from Rosberg this weekend? Well, he, he put it all on the line, didn't he? That final run in Q3, and he still came out short. Um, you know, by his own admission, Lewis was too strong for him in qualifying and then come the Grand Prix. I mean, Lewis's only potential Achilles heel was going to be the start. But looking at what he did in Austin last week and, and you know, what he did in Mexico, you'd have to say he's sort of getting the hang of that now. Once they got to turn one and he was through, sort of across the grass, but he, he will come back to that, I'm sure. But, you know, after that, it was kind of done and dusted. I think that the circuit was, is tricky here because of the high altitude, you know, we're nearly 2,300 meters up. And it has a big effect in terms of braking stability because you've got less downforce. It's got a big effect in terms of actual aero grip. And to compound that, you've got a track surface, which is actually quite low grip. You know, it's a very smooth surface. In, in FP1 and even FP2, it looked dreadful. You know, not a single car I watched, apart from maybe the Ferrari, actually, in P2 on the super soft tire. But there was nobody else that I watched and thought, wow, that looks hooked up. You know, everyone looked like they were really struggling. It started to come alive a little bit in, in qualifying. But, you know, I think the combination of those two things made it really tricky. And Lewis, we know when when you get these conditions which are sort of less than optimal in terms of grip... Uh, he's got tremendous feel under braking. You know, I don't think there's anyone in the history of Formula One who's ever had such good feel under braking. And those corners you just mentioned at the end of the two DRS zones, absolutely uh, crucial for that. Ed and I were saying, just to sort of elucidate further upon that point, that actually it's, it's quite a good thing to have circuits like this because if, if it was all high grip and high speed corners, which of course you know, the drivers profess to love because they like going quickly then they're not really exploring all the bits of their skill set, are they? So when you see corners like that, it's actually asking questions that a high-grip circuit might not. Yeah, I think that the track layout, if it was actually at sea level, would be really good for overtaking. Uh, I think, again, because we're high up, the slipstream effect is much less than it would be. And therefore, I don't think we saw as much overtaking as I would have liked to have seen. You know, I think they... Uh, even with DRS and the the slipstream, the racing both last year and this year hasn't you know it's not been brilliant, has it? When you look at the layout, thinking, wow, it's a you know it's over one kilometer straight line. Surely there's going to be some fantastic slipstreaming battles here, but then it just kind of doesn't happen. Do you think that the tyres have got a role to play with that? Because. Uh in the post-race presser for the podium finishers, a local journalist asked the, the three uh, finishers, and uh, the guy who then subsequently wasn't in third place anymore... What there were three third-place finishers. <laughs> there were three third-place finishers, yeah. Uh, he, he asked them what, what they would do to improve the circuit, and uh, Lewis very diplomatically didn't criticise the circuit and said, actually, pro- probably quite presciently, that it would be better if um, Pirelli sort of shifted... Uh, a range softer and brought the ultra soft 
super soft yep. and soft. And, and Rob Smedley said in his press debrief afterwards, pretty much the same. He would he would love to see that. Yeah, I hundred percent agree. I mean, we we don't like to see one stop races, and you could see when you watch the Grand Prix unfold, there were a lot of drivers coming on the radio, not just on the TV broadcast that everybody saw, but on the pit lane channel that that you know I listened to as well. There were so many people, drivers coming up uh, to their engineers going, do something, we have to do something, get me out of this, I'm stuck behind this train. But on a one-stop race, what could they do? Yeah. <laughs> they can't pit again, they can't go, they can't do anything. So um, I, I, I 100% agree. I mean, the medium tire, the fact that Palmer did, what, 69 laps or something? Uh, that, yeah, that's wrong. The whole race distance. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's, that's wrong. You know, we we shouldn't see... Races like that, that wasn't ever the plan. And um, I, I 100% agree, they should have brought the Ultrasoft. And obviously, talking about Lewis's excellent performance, the one problem was the first corner. Obviously, Karun, you've got a bit of experience of clattering across the grass. I used to see you in your early days in F3 when you did that a lot. But I just wanted to read this quote from Lewis after the race when he, he talked about brake temperature problems and brake glazing. He said, basically, on the formation lap, I had a glazed front right brake. I couldn't wake it up. So I had 500C in the left front and 150 to 200C in the right front. Now, Nico Hülkenberg gave that short shrift. He said, well, if you had a glazed front brake there, that would be a problem for the rest of the race. He was one of the drivers, as was Rosberg, who wasn't delighted to see him not penalised. So what, what do you make of what Lewis has said and what happened? Well, first of all, you can, you can clean up disc glazing because there's, disc glazing is not a, a black and white thing. You know, there's different degrees of having your brakes glazed. So they, they can clean up over a five to eight lap period. Uh, it would have needed some hard, aggressive braking from him under the uh, safety car. Uh, perhaps we should explain to people what glazing means. What, what happens is uh, you've got the, the carbon brakes, and they if you don't get enough temperature in them, you know, carbon brakes need to work at a minimum of 450 degrees. You know, anything above that is good. Anything below that is way below the, the threshold. Um, and if he's talking 200, then it, it kind of gets this mirror-shiny effect. And effectively, the the brake pad doesn't bite against the disc, so it just sort of just slips effectively on, on or slides on the top surface. Um, but that can get cleaned up, you know. A, a split of that degree, and if he's talking, you know, just over two hundred on the front brake disc, that's way below temperature. So I can understand why he 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 ended up locking up and going straight. But I think Lewis got away with that. There was a lot of people calling for him to be penalised. But I think the fact that the race was basically neutralized uh, in terms of the safety car coming out, I think, negated any effect of him gaining an advantage. Well, the interesting thing is, if you look at it, he did actually have quite a big lead after that because there was a clear advantage. If you look at him, by the time he gets to turn four, he's got a huge amount of clear space. Obviously, Verstappen and Rosberg had had their wheel-banging moment, so that would have cost them time anyway. But I think you're right. The, the virtual safety car, safety car period probably did kind of eliminate the need, perhaps, especially with the fact there was a mess going on behind, so you'd ended up with we could have ended up with all sorts of penalties flying around. I guess there's kind of too many what ifs in a lot of those uh, things that the stewards looked at this weekend. Because to kind of uh, look at what where Lewis was after that incident, you have to look back and and and, and consider how much time Verstappen and Rosberg mm. lost by banging wheels and Rosberg yeah, exactly. going over the grass as well. And, and later on, there there were similar things where you kind of think, well. Uh, well, I, I think in those instances where where there is a question mark and a what if, they did the right thing, which is give the benefit of doubt to the driver because it would have been completely wrong to even to penalise him for that because it's like, uh, as you say, you know, what if these two hadn't hit each other? Then they may have been in a slipstream down to turn four, blah, blah, blah. There are too many questions. So I think it was right not to penalise him there. It's almost the fault of the circuits, really, isn't it? particularly oh, yeah. that one, because obviously another what if, if there'd been a gravel trap there, Lewis would have locked up. He wouldn't have come off the brakes and rolled across the grass deliberately. He'd have locked, yep. he'd have had a bigger lock up. He was close to having to pit anyway with a flat spot. So surely if he tried to keep it on the track and, and got around the corner, he would have had to be in the pits at the end of the first lap and he'd have been on a recovery drive from the back. So this this is kind of a, a problem that's been going for years really, hasn't it, with, yep. with clear I, runoffs? I never actually got a chance to ask Charlie about it, but I was a bit surprised not to see the speed bumps, for example, that they've used at the at the top of Lecom at Spa, for example, where, you know, the, the drivers can't go across that flat out because they will damage the floor of the car. And, I, you know, it was quite a sensible solution, I thought, at Spa. And you could see anyone who 
you know, we saw quite a few drivers cut across the top. They did lose time and they did you know, perhaps lose a position. So bit surprised they didn't choose to do that here. Um, 100% agree. You know, I, you know, I'm not a fan of the tarmac runoffs at all. Never have been. I, I believe in real gravel and, and grass being the best solution because it, you know, you can't go flat out through that. You will damage the car. And uh, yeah, I, I, I understand the reasons behind it. It's because of motorcycle racing and various other sort of safety concerns that certain people have researched. But it's almost created as many problems as it's solved. And and I'm not going to go down that path because that's a whole podcast <laughs> on its own. The, <laughs> that's that's don't a get three, me started. Three part special coming this yeah, week. Exactly. We, I think we, we need to um, really have some perspective on this. In that, what one of the most pressing reasons for bringing in the tarmac runoffs came from above uh, and the short grey-haired Mr Majika looked like who presides over the sport who was worried that if cars got beached in the gravel trap there wouldn't be that many cars running at the end of the race and it would ruin the show so thither we we got asphalt runoffs. You say that though uh, Stuart but I you know I, I've been on the FI Drivers Commission now for the last three or four years. Ah, so we can blame you. Yeah, yeah. Your you're, fault. you're to blame. You. No, we, uh, we, we, you know, we. Why don't you do anything? Let me finish him. No, we, we're, we not letting, <laughs> we're not letting anyone associated with officialdom finish. <laughs> no, I mean, we, we, we obviously have meetings with the Safety Department and the Circuits Commission, just to be clear, that they are the ones responsible for it. And they, you know, they genuinely believe this is, you know, they've done a lot of research and they. I won't bore you the details, but they do present a lot of their research as to why this works. And as I say, there are probably most instances is because of a compromise that needs to be done with the FIM for the motorcycle guys. But, you know, I, I don't think that we really have seen the final solution. I think what, what we saw in Austria was actually quite good, although it you know, damaged some suspensions and stuff. But it was a deterrent. It stopped people from using those, you know, big runoff areas that they have there. They couldn't go beyond a certain point of the curb. And then I think they sort of had these bolt-down curbs, which, because the MotoGP went to Austria two or three weeks later, and they, I noticed they lifted those, they sort of unbolted those yeah, curbs. Yeah, they can change the curbs because they change for DTM as well. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think that is actually quite a clever solution. Uh, and it's something that, uh, you know, maybe needs to be looked at at other circuits. And obviously there was the other turn one incident, uh, Rosberg wheel banging with Verstappen, or vice versa, I should say. Obviously Verstappen had a brief lock up. He was contesting for second place, pushed Rosberg a bit wide. They had their they had their moment. Both survived it. Rosberg, I think, said he had a little bit of a steering offset uh, for the rest of the race. What, what do we think of that? The stewards did have a brief look at it. No, the, you're talking about lap one. Yeah, lap one. I, I think it's it's just lap one, turn one, argy bargy. To be honest, it's you know it happens in Formula Four. It happens in any category. I think it's. It's fine. We, we we need to, you know, we need to not nitpick at every single little bit of wheel banging. So no, I thought that was fine. In the words of Jensen Button in the uh, presser the other day, I concur. Good. That's a useful uh, useful quote to add to the mix. I think it's a good point when it comes to that when it comes to that kind of racing. I'm very wary about penalties being given based purely on outcomes. They should be the physics of the incident. But I always think when you get something like that one or Rosberg on Raikkonen in Malaysia, where both kind of get away with it, that's when you have to say, yeah, okay, you sort of let that one slide. It's it's what people want to see, isn't it? Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's been there's been various instances of um, inconsistency, I think, and that's, you know, all three of us spoke to the drivers yesterday, various drivers, and everyone complained. I think it was pretty unanimous in that, you know, the consistency of penalties this year has been has been questionable. I do understand from the steward's standpoint, because I've had conversations with, you know, Emmanuel Ipiro and Tom Christensen and Emerson Fittipaldi, you know, these guys who have been in the steward's room. And it's a subjective thing. Every, you know, if the three of us looked at an incident, we'll probably have three different views on it. So as long as you have different stewards coming to every race, you are going to have inconsistencies. That's just human nature. That's just the way it goes. On It's a subjective thing. So I think that that process, for me, needs to be looked at, is how do we tighten that up? Because you, know, you look at Austin, Ed, and the you know Alonso Massa incident, where Fernando wasn't penalized. 
I don't see how that's different to what happened to Rosberg and Raikkonen in, in Malaysia. Massa's quite a good example, actually. I spoke to Massa in Miami, funnily enough, about that incident. So we can have a bit of a listen to, to what he says about the incident before, before carrying on. Well, I mean, to be honest, I don't blame him to try to overtake. I mean, he's at the end of the race. We are fighting there for the fifth place, which is really a great position for all of these three cars fighting there. Uh, but I mean, he was too far away. I mean, he's just diving inside, and uh, if I was not there, he couldn't make the corner. You know, so he just uh, managed to overtake because he hit me, and uh, even hitting me, he was out, he he went outside of the track. So uh, it was too much. You know, even if uh, maybe the camera from the top, it looks amazing. He tried to overtake. They touch. You know, it's just nice. But I mean, he was far away. He just uh, locking the wheels and uh, and and just coming with, with the wheel lock and hit my car which he was definitely too much. So, and then after that, he even overtakes signs and he went completely offside of the track uh, on braking. And uh, it's fine. I think he maybe he had a very good uh, friend in the stewards' uh, room uh, this race, to be honest. I mean, are you surprised that they didn't look at that? Is that going to change the way you approach the last few races in terms of track limits? If you can be quite so forceful and run off the track to carry more speed into corners, that kind of thing, surely you're going to take advantage of that? I'm surprised because it's very inconsistent, the, 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 the penalties, you know. So that's, uh, for me, uh, for sure, what's happened to other uh, cars, you know, moving on braking, this is a different thing. But, uh, you know, it's a bit inconsistent. And that, for me, is not working really well. And, uh, and I hope, really, they, they think about what to do, because otherwise it ju- they just make the drivers uh, thinking that you can do everything you want. And obviously that part of the circuit is quite difficult in the position you were in. You were chasing Sainz, you had Fernando behind you, and obviously the, the line kind of carries you wide and it can open up quite a inviting door up the inside. So how difficult is it when you're in that situation in between two cars, Sainz had a lock-up, you're trying to get a good exit to get as close as him to possible, and you've got another car behind you. So do you just have to assume that when a car's that far behind, you're safe, you're not going to be attacked? No, the, the thing is that when I go out of the, the corner before, I, was, I had a, a, quite a good gap. So that's why I tried to go on the, the, the better line is to break completely on the right and then you turn. But he was not close. He was far away. And you can even watch in, the, in the, his inside camera. He was far away. And then I didn't believe he was trying that be, to, because he was not close to me, you know. So otherwise I would break inside for sure if he was a little bit closer to me. So I never believed he was trying to pass me there. And he just passed me because he locks and he pushed me out. Otherwise he would never make the corner. You know, so that that's a, a little bit different thing. For sure, maybe if when you look from the top, it looks amazing. But then if you look and you pay attention, it's completely different than, than, than how it looks from the top. Uh, clearly, Massa, <laughs> not, not particularly happy with that either. So, yeah, I think the, the process needs to be understood. And I do find it odd that in, you know, a sport where the stakes are so high, um, you know, we'll come down to the the third place shambles at the end. But, you know, the difference between having a car on the podium, not on the podium, you know, there's a lot of money at stake, a lot of prize money at stake. And, and you know, championship, world championship points and things like that. And we've seen so many instances this year where the stewards have got involved. Um, Hockenheim, I thought, with Rosberg, I didn't think he deserved to be penalised there in that move with Verstappen. Um, Austria... He got a nothing penalty, which I thought was wrong as well. So, you know, I think there's there's been a lot of instances. And you almost think if you had three or four, I don't know how many other stewards they need, guys who are... No, nobody's going to volunteer to do 21 weekends. It's impossible. No, Nobody has that much time to spare. But if Apart you from had, you, obviously, no. in your uh, capacity as a broadcaster. You're paid to do it. Uh, you, I don't know. I might put you forward because obviously you did bring us some coffees before this. So yeah. you've, you're, you know, you're cheap and you're and you're very willing to help. <laughs> yeah. No, I think you know they. If they have four people who are permanently there, even if it's a wrong decision, it's at least the same wrong decision every time. So you get consistency. Then everybody knows what the lay of the land is. You know, a pre-season test Barcelona. You get Charlie, four stewards. All the 22 drivers, the 11 team managers, you have a big meeting at the pre-season test and say, right, boys, here are some videos of incidents that happened in the past. These, I think, are acceptable. These are unacceptable. Clean slate. Forget all the precedents. Forget everything that happened before. From the start of 2017, this is now what's acceptable and what's not. There's also a question of 
the sort of the level of information available to the stewards and how you process that information in the stewards room when you're investigating because they've got so many angles and replays that it, it can get a little and, bit and, forensic and very specialized data as well yeah so the, for instance in in the revolving door over third place obviously Verstappen to Vettel revolving door was quite quick because it was a bit open and shut and then the Vettel can you open and shut a revolving door it depends. It's it's like a rotary engine valve. Yeah, that's isn't what it? confused Bernie those years ago. <laughs> it did. <you> spin, <laughs> spin, spin, spin the wheel of justice. So, so is this that a revolving door is always either open or shut? It's, it's, is it Schrodinger's I, revolving door? I think it is Schrodinger's revolving door. You sort of if, if, once you're in, only when you're in it can you work out whether it's open or shut. But anyway, moving on. Otherwise, we'll be just be revolving in this revolving door of Schrodingeration. <laughs> the um, I've, I've almost lost it. Yes, Vettel and uh, Ricardo. To my mind, when I was watching that live, I just thought, kind of racing incident. And I actually thought, haven't those two drivers done a damn good job of not actually hitting one another? I thought Ricardo did a blinding job. He's he's so good in wheel-to-wheel in terms of being right on the edge that he's a fantastic driver, isn't he? That ability Uh, to survive those uh, things. uh, And then you look at that, uh, what was it? So, four o'clock, they had to report to the stewards. Ten to six, the uh, result was published. So that's a good hour and a half or more of forensically looking at replays, data, and that sort of thing. And it kind of reminded me of, uh, sorry to bring the oval-shaped ball in, Ed, rugby, where you have the television match official, and every so often the ref stops the game, and there's this interminable process where you look at this incident replayed in slow motion. And sometimes a wise referee will say, can you stop showing me that in slow motion and replay it in real time? Because very often an incident um, looks worse in slow motion than it does when it's actually happening in real time. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I don't, I mean, it's, it's hard to judge when you're not in the room. But I, Ed and I were talking about this in, in, over the weekend where I, I think back again to Austria where you know, Lewis and Nico hit each other, I think it was the last lap at turn three. And that would have been at probably 3.45, you know, in the afternoon. We got the result ne- nearly at 7 o'clock or something. You know, we nearly missed our flight. Um, you know, if that I hope happened, you took to Twitter to angrily declaim the world for that. No, no, but, but it's, uh, what, what confused me was if that incident had happened on lap 2, they would have made the decision by lap 12 and given him his penalty during the Grand Prix. So... That, that I think that that comes back to your point is that if something happens towards the end of the race, they end up with so much time to look and look and look and almost in some way overanalyze it. But I think that I, I do disagree with you, though, on the Vettel-Ricardo one, because when I saw it, the first thing I thought was this contradicts the the... A uh, bit of paperwork that came out on Thursday about moving under the braking zone. Well, we can actually just looking at what the stewards said in terms of the rules. The um, let me just. Uh, Ed's got all the information at his fingertips no, exactly, at all times. Although, although I'd, I'd scrolled down on the screen, so I'd, I'd, I got onto an irrelevant bit. So. Yeah, the steward's note said, Article 27.5 and the race director's notes have essentially three criteria that determine a breach. Driving in a manner potentially dangerous and a normal change of direction and another driver having to take evasive action. And for me, it does tick those tick those boxes. It was a, a late move. Ricardo had to take evasive action. They were quite lucky not to have a, a collision. So in terms of this being a, a kind of official rule rather than an unwritten sort of gentleman's rule, if you like, as it was before. I think they had to penalise him, otherwise that whole rule change yep. would have been completely I mean, it, debased. It, it's highly ironical that effectively a rule driven by Verstappen's moves early in the year has been, ultimately benefited Red Bull at the first race that it's been brought in. You know, it's uh, was it was it was it ironic or merely a happy coincidence that also Vettel, who's one of the chief moaners about other people moving under braking, I think Alanis Morissette needs to know whether that's ironic or just a coincidence. Obviously, Vettel was not especially happy at that moment, so you can excuse him a little bit of fury. Obviously, if we look back just before that, when Vettel attacked Verstappen using the DRS going down to turn one, Verstappen overcooked it on the brake, stayed ahead, cut cut the corner. He was initially told by the team, as we heard on the radio, to maybe cede the position. And then they apparently said, no, don't, we're having a look at it. And I suspect there was probably a strategic reason for that. And obviously he was stuck behind a car he felt he shouldn't have been behind. So he was on the radio saying, oh, I'm, I'm being backed into Ricardo now. This is ridiculous. So 
it, it wasn't the right thing to do, but you can understand why he was quite so furious. I know Vettel loves being furious in the car, but that, that was a situation I think any driver would have been livid about, and maybe that might cloud the judgment. I think, first of all, we should clarify the Verstappen thing. They, they said on the radio, you may need to give that place back. What wasn't broadcast out to the world and what um, uh, his engineer, Giampero Lambesi, said to me was, Verstappen's reply was, okay, let me know. And then he said, keep going for the moment and then nothing else. So, you know, there were a lot of people on Twitter saying, you know, the team told him to give the place back. That wasn't actually true. There was a conversation that carried on that that wasn't put out to the world. You know, I I fully understand in the heat of battle, you you do get frustrated. You do rant about other people. And it's completely illogical. You know, I've done it loads of times where you you rant about traffic, for example, in qualifying. And I'll never forget, I had an engineer in um, GP2. And, you know, I got held up on my quick lap, et cetera, et cetera. I was ranting down the radio. And eventually he got so fed up, he came back with, what the beep do you want me to do about it? And I was like, well, actually, that's actually true. So, <laughs> But it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because obviously we listen to these radio broadcasts and people make all sorts of judgments about it. I mean, Hulkenberg was saying after the race, you know, obviously we're doing 300 plus kilometers an hour, you know, right on the limit. Yeah. And sometimes drivers need to be able to vent, et cetera. You know, you don't get... In a football match, you don't, well, certainly not in uh, in some countries, they do do it. They get lip readers and all sorts of things. But you don't get this kind of in-depth thing of everything a footballer yeah, says right. in anger. You know, that, there's got to be, I guess, uh, half the time it's a release, isn't it? Because, yeah. you know, no, if Fettel's I mean, angry about I, blue I flags, no... he can he can just sort of yeah. vent on the radio and that's that anger gone and he can just get on with driving. And they're not robots, are they? And it's only language that you would hear on the street. Yeah, I mean, the, is, you know, I, I didn't really have a problem with him showing emotion and frustration there were two comments that we heard. I don't know the others that we didn't hear. There were two comments that I that we heard, which I thought were a bit over the line. One was calling Fernando Alonso an idiot in FP2 because really it's FP2. You don't get points. You don't get prizes. It doesn't matter. And Fernando Alonso is not an idiot. He's a double world champion who is arguably one of the best drivers of all time. The other one was having a pop at Charlie Whiting uh, I, I thought that was a bit over the line. It was a bit stupid as well. You know, you want to you want to be on side with the referee, so yeah, to speak. Yeah, fill in fill in the blanks as well. I, I noticed that one of the journalists in the post race presser um, asked uh, Sebastian to uh, elucidate as to what he actually said, and uh, he he declined to define the term of Anglo-Saxon that he used. But I, I can imagine we all know what it was. He has an excellent grasp of English. Uh, that's what comes from driving for certain uh, British yeah, teams in the junior and days. I, and I mean, you know, it, it, I think it's a you. We have to keep in mind here who he is and and what he's achieved. All those years, Lee McKenzie put this to him because all those years that he was winning the World Championship, he often talked about how he wants to be a role model for the next generation, a role model for kids. He's now a father, et cetera, et cetera. And sort of Lee put it to him going, do you think that was fitting of a role of being a, a role model for the next generation? And he, he did not like that. You know, I think you, I think the the, uh, the interview is online. People can see it, but he was not happy. Yeah, you could see his face. Shrift. You could see his face change and he was furious, furious, sort of like, what sort of a question is that? And also known as, yeah, you got me on that one. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. So I think, yeah, it's... It's a funny one, that. Well, he's he, he's just annoyed that he said something in the heat of the moment, and uh, he's, he's got to pay the consequences for it. But we we do live largely in a in a world where our democratic rights to express our opinion, whether that opinion is right or wrong, uh, is enshrined in various constitutions. And if he yep. wants to describe the race director in terms that rhyme with the surname of the 1976 world champion, for instance, then he is perfectly free to express that opinion, but he's going to have to pay the consequences afterwards, and he can't sort of switch his mouth from blow to suck and hoover those words back in. Well, the the world has changed, hasn't it? You know, I, I was looking at a, a press conference, because obviously there's this big furore about Lewis in, in Suzuka, and I was looking at a press conference from the early 90s with Senna and Mansell, and you know, Senna's come out of the race, won the Hungarian Grand Prix, and all he can do is complain about how bad the car and the engine are, etc., etc. You know, that sort of stuff just doesn't happen these days. And yeah. you know, like it or not, the world has changed, and everyone's just gotten a bit more PC. So we do, we do like to see characters. I think it's great to see emotion. It's great for the show. I, I spoke to Bernie afterwards. I uh, unusually he stayed till after the Grand Prix, and. Um, uh, so I, I sort of popped into his office and had a bit of a chat, asked him what he thought of it all. And, you know, he said it's 
is great for the show and he is right you know we do we do need to keep all of that in mind for the show but there is a line as i say there were two things that i had a problem with the rest of it i thought was good for the show so just looking back through the incidents we've had in this race obviously there were multiple stewards decisions we've got our little three-man steward panel here including a a former driver no you're, sorry you're not retired <laughs> including a driver but we're, we're actually by definition an impermanent panel of three because uh, so karun and i are part of your rotating cast of special it's, it's, guests it's a revolving cast yes yeah, so I'm, I'm just the uh, i'm just the the chairman as it were so i get the casting vote but turn one hamilton at the start we're happy with rosberg verstappen we're happy with i think we're two one in favor of the vettel penalty verstappen cutting turn one which he got the five second penalty that cost him what was initially third place over the line tricky one for me uh once again that was a, a an incident to me where i i couldn't tell whether or not he took an advantage from that um i think he eliminated a disadvantage is the way i'd, I'd look at that one. Oh, what a wonderful way of putting it i think verstappen and this is something piro said to me in suzuka when he was steward. he said verstappen is incredibly intelligent he understands the regulations and he knows how to flirt with the edge of being legal without going over it. And, you know, this is one of the problems with, with these runoff areas and, and sort of get out of jail cards you get at chicanes is that if you, you know, as a driver, you're wheel to wheel with somebody. And if you think somebody's going to come down the inside, all you have to do is come off the brakes and go straight across. And, and then you can argue the toss later that I was in front going in and I'm in front coming out. I haven't gained an advantage. You kind of had, and I think the way you put it was right, is that you got away without a disadvantage uh, of being overtaken. So, yeah, to me, that that was a tricky one. And I think you'd need to really look at the data and see at what point he came off the brakes. You know, could he have made the corner, um, even if it meant losing a place? And if he could have made the corner then he deserved the penalty. Well, I think this is why you kind of need to eliminate that option with what we were talking yeah, about earlier, with, uh, with, with treating the runoff in a way that either there's gravel or there's something that slows you down. Because obviously it becomes a bit of a, a zero-risk thing for him because he, he cuts across, he gets a five-second penalty later. It doesn't really cost him anything. To me, he should have just given the place back there and then had another go you know, over the next straight or something. I mean, his tyres were shot by that point. But... If you're asking me for a firm view, I would say he should have given the place back then and there. I'd agree with that. I think it, it, it's the logical thing to do. I think we have unanimity in our three-man panel here. Excellent. And obviously the, the other incident, which uh, was a spectacular one on the first lap, was when Sainz moved over on Alonso. And we saw, I remember what, you watched the field coming down to turn four and we were seeing a car sideways on the grass and just saying, oh, there's going to be a big one there. Fortunately, it was Fernando Alonso. So he was gonna, if anyone was going to gather it up, it was going to be him. But obviously Sainz was annoyed about that penalty. Because he was sort of well ahead. He said he didn't really see Alonso. Fernando did have a bit of an overlap. And there was nothing he could have done about it. So, again, that one I'm inclined to think is a is a fair one. Because he was forced off the track. And, again, we have now got this sliding scale of penalties. You can have a five-second penalty. You can have a ten-second penalty. You can have a drive-through. Stop-go, I think, still exists. But yeah. I don't know what you'd have to do to, to get a stop-go. He, <laughs> he, he, he may not have been able to see Fernando in his mirrors. But I'm sure, and Karun will correct me if I'm wrong... At that point in a race, on the first lap, in a corner like that, you're kind of going to know that there might be someone there. And he he closed the door pretty decisively and invited the person behind him in that position to back off. Unfortunately, the person in that position was double world champion Fernando Alonso, who's not a man to back off, but fortunately, as you said, has the skills to gather up the ensuing tank slapper. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but he got that, five seconds added at the end of the race, didn't he? He didn't serve it. He didn't have to do it at the pit stop because no, no, they awarded yeah. it. Yeah. They, they I think they awarded afterwards. it a lap after the pit stop, basically. But, so in a one-stop race, yeah, that, that but that system is, doesn't do, work well. Do you not think... I mean, I, first of all, I, I do agree with the penalty. But secondly, do you guys not think that in itself is flawed? Because if you have to serve a five-second penalty on lap 14 of the Grand Prix, you will drop behind in terms of track position and get stuck behind slower cars in which case you will lose much more than five seconds whereas if you get awarded the five second penalty you know added to your time at the end of the grand prix you'll only lose the five seconds you're not losing getting stuck potentially behind a toro or a, i mean so behind a renault or a manor or a sauber who's slower than you 
you're also interfering with the, with the race more because you've got someone ahead of you you're battling with. They're, they're not really there, if you like, but of course they are still getting in your way, holding you up, causing you to overweight your, your tyres. Yeah, I mean, the more I've, I've thought about it this year, the more I think they need to be a little more universal in how they, they award this five-second penalty because doing it, you know, especially if you've got a race with, with multiple pit stops where if you've got a two-stop or a three-stop race where it's so crucial to hammer through traffic and get through quickly and... You know, track position is so, so important. If you get a penalty at your first pit stop, it's just, it's just ruined your entire afternoon. Whereas, in theory, if you're only trying to award a five-second penalty, just make it universally done at the end of the Grand Prix. I'd like to see that because it also it, it interferes more with the race and it becomes, as you say, more than a five-second penalty, doesn't it? But, of course, the counter-argument is that people like to see the, the impact of the penalties as early as possible and like you say, in a normal race with two, three pit stops, that penalty would have been served earlier. So that I guess that's the counter-argument. I do actually, I basically agree with the idea that you want to kind of even up the advantage or disadvantage and minimise the influence, the disruptive influence the driver who is an illusion, if you like, can have on the race. But at the same time, there's also this push to change as little as possible after the race. Well, uh, no, you announce it. You announce it on lap three. If a guy's done something on lap one, you announce, if he's jumped, done a jump start, Right, you announce it on lap three or lap four that he's got a five-second penalty. So everybody knows. You know, we're, we're broadcasting to the world, and you guys are, you know, updating the world on your websites and all sorts. But everybody knows that when the guy crosses the checkered flag, five seconds are added straight away. I, I, I don't have a problem with that. You know, I think it's as long as everybody knows, and and we then have an hour or whatever to explain to the world that this guy's going to have five seconds added, keep it in mind, I think that's fine. You know, Formula One is a complex sport. People watching, they're not stupid people. They they do understand that this is a complex sport, which everything's not out there. It's And adding five seconds is much less complicated than trying to understand tyre strategies. Better for the people watching at home and at the track if it's all determined there and then. Because no one likes to have it uh, the, the result pulled two, three, four hours after the fact, do they? Hang on, you've just contradicted yourself then. So do you want this five seconds added at the end or not? I want it added at the end. I, I, I didn't contradict myself you mean, at all. You mean, like with the Verstappen thing, that the, the cross the line, then the yeah, timing cross, screen cross changes. Yeah, cross the line, right, then gone. Okay. Timing screen changes. Instantaneously. I mean, not, not sort of... Um, not an hour you, you later. Go, you go, you've, you've, you've watched uh, Sebastian Vettel uh, wave and cheer and not drink uh, sparkling wine from his shoe. Uh, and then you, you you go off and do whatever else you're going to do on a Sunday afternoon. And then you switch the news on later and, oh, uh, in a darkened room, some people have changed the result. Yeah, it's just sure. irritating, really. Yep. So, are we fairly happy with the way third, fourth, and fifth shook out? Obviously, in the end, it was Verstappen was third across the line, then Vettel was third, and then Ricardo moved up. So we had Ricardo third, Verstappen fourth, Vettel fifth. It was justice served across those. I think all all three of those had great Grand Prix. Um, it's a shame it worked out how it did, but you wouldn't look at Ricardo and say he didn't deserve to get third place. He really made that strategy work, especially yeah. after that. Yeah, the first lap. Stop made life quite difficult for him, and then they did the yeah. second stop, and he, he charged through. Yeah, I, d- I don't, I don't know if he would have passed Verstappen, so I'm not convinced that second stop did anything for him. You know, they were third, fourth before the stop, and he kind of ended up where, where it he just it just made anyway. the race harder for him. It, it, made, it made the race harder. It made it more exciting to watch, but I don't think the two stop strategy was was the thing to do. Well, it certainly wasn't for for Kimi Raikkonen who made that second stop on lap 45 for no obvious reason. Solely, as far as I could see, to give up track position to Nico Hulkenberg. It was just, and then, of course, it, it was we, inexplicable. Well, you saw how it? close, you know, he could have ended up getting stuck behind Nico, who was struggling on three million year old tyres, having uh, having stopped, think, on lap 14. But obviously, Hulkenberg spun, trying to hang on alongside him, could easily have backed into Raikkonen, and, and both of them would have been out, or the Ferrari was out, and he could have stayed out, held track position, and he'd been fine. That situation comes back to not something that happened on Sunday afternoon, Ed. That comes back to what happened 14 weeks ago when they chose their tyres. Because Raikkonen and Ferrari chose only two sets of mediums for him coming into the weekend. And therefore, the first time he really got a reading on the medium tyres on the long run was you know, it was was in, in the Grand Prix. Um, I think he did a little bit in free practice, but not enough. And... Um, you know, and he he said I wasn't happy, so we thought we'd put another new set on and see if it was better, and it really wasn't. So, 
But that isn't that just Ferrari all over? You know, you can yeah, you, I mean, you, you can extrapolate these things, can't you? And it always seems to be that Ferrari, you know, Australia was another case in point, wasn't it? They said, oh, we didn't really know about these yeah. tyres. Yeah, I mean, they've done, I was going to say, the, you know, I was talking to people from Mercedes about this in, in uh, Suzuka, I think, talking about tyre allocations and how difficult it is to do. Uh, and in fact, um, Tom McCulloch, who's the chief engineer at Force India, and I, he was sort of explaining the complexities of it. And he says, the one thing you have to understand with the Pirelli tires is they're highly uh, temperamental when it comes to getting it in the window in terms of temperature. You know, the track, the 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 asphalt, the temperature, and the lateral loads all play a huge factor. And nobody on this pit on this grid can say they conclusively know what tire to use when. So therefore, the right thing to do is to give yourself options. And you know, we've seen on more than one occasion Ferrari have come with one set of mediums for example or one set of the hard of a particular compound and you think well you've sort of snookered yourself here because if all of these factors come together it and mean that that tire is the one to have on sunday you might have to put it on in the grand prix without having run it at all in terms of getting information of free practice and he's like why do you snooker yourself and i think mercedes particularly are very good at making sure they've got enough of all of the tires to use through the Grand Prix. They never get to a situation where on either car they've thought, mm, we haven't got enough tires. Uh, I think Force India, actually, have, uh, that's one, been one of their strengths, I think, is they've done really well in terms of giving themselves options. Tom McCulloch's a really smart bloke, isn't he? He's very good to speak to, and you, you often, at the end of your conversation, you realise how little you actually know about the inner workings of Formula yep. One. Well, did you know that he and Pete Bonington, Lewis's engineer, were roommates at university? Roommate? Do people still share rooms at university these days? Apparently so. Extraordinary. <laughs> the the shock at that, given that we're recording this podcast not in a swanky studio, but in in my hotel room in Mexico City, perhaps uh, perhaps says that strange things do go on in hotel. You rooms. do have room for a roommate here because there are two beds, which yeah, is absolutely it means quite I, strange. Just, I can do a two stop. I can do a one stop strategy, sort of change once in the middle of the night, or you can do two. It's uh, it works well. Uh, and then looking behind, obviously we had we had Reichen six, Hulkenberg seventh, then we had the two Williamses. Bottas Massa and then Sergio Perez in 10th in the Force India who spent most of the race staring at the back of Massa not being able to able to pass him and I getting guess, furious about exactly, it exactly exactly but that that's a very good day for Force India considering this this was probably the track that Williams would have expected to have the best advantage of of the last of the last three they're quite confident about Abu Dhabi as well but it looks like this fourth place in the constructors battle is going is going to Force India isn't it yeah I mean from se- since mid-season they've had the stronger car you know they 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 deserve to be there. They've had the faster car, and I think if you look at Hulkenberg's season, he's been a bit unlucky. He had first lap incidents in Sochi, in Austin, and Singapore. Yeah, Singapore off the line, wasn't it? So you know he's had three first lap incidents where points were sort of lost. Um, I think yeah, they they deserve to be where they are in the constructors' championship. They've got quite a mature technical package. Both teams, haven't they? Because both the cars have a very strong familial familial resemblance with the cars they raced last year. It just seems to be that Force India have a better read on how their car behaves, whereas Williams haven't really... Well, Felipe said that they've had the same car for months now and they haven't had much in the way of meaningful updates. Uh, And it it just seems that Williams are still learning about the car and learning about the tyres and coming to the end of a Grand Prix weekend saying, all right, well, now now, now we've actually learned how the tyres behave. We'll be better at this circuit next year. A bit late for that. No, I, I think a lot of it comes down to aero, doesn't it? When you look at the, the races where Force India have you know heavily outperformed Williams, they're the circuits with higher downforce requirements. Uh, you know, That's been a limiting factor at Williams for, for a while, hasn't it? You, yeah. It's always difficult from the outside to be sure, but you kind of look at it and you think, well, there's consistently I think what, a, a, a kind of weakness there where they're, they're, it's as soon as you start exploring these really complex areas, it's like they get to 95% of the potential, but then aero development now, three years into these aero rules, it's all about little really tiny changes and tiny That's flicks. right, and I think what's happened is as the power units have sort of started to equalise, you know, Williams gained massively in 2014 and the beginning of 15 when the Mercedes was clearly ahead. But now that the the Ferrari power unit and the Renault have started to come closer, you know when they don't hook up 
a weekend in in terms of getting the the, the ultimate result they run the risk of being behind Toro Rosso or even McLaren or occasionally Haas earlier in the year you know and and all of a sudden they've lost points then to to Force India whereas Force India have somehow managed to stay ahead of that sort of midfield pack it's a little bit like was it um 2011 2012 when they junked the Cosworth in favor of the Renault and got an instant performance boost and uh everyone said yes Williams is back but then uh, as soon as aero development uh, kicked in and the the Coanda exhaust particularly um they they slumped again and, and when Pat Simmons arrived as their chief technical officer he realized that they kind of they had no idea how this Coanda system was working, and the first thing he would say, "Take it off. You don't know how it works." Yeah, that was when in 2013, wasn't it, when Bottas actually got some points in Austin. That was when they taken off the Coanda exhaust, and the performance was transformed, which is which is extraordinary. I'm um, looking further down. Any other standout performances? Marcus Ericsson, 11th. That yeah, was, brilliant. Pretty impressive. He's he's an interesting driver because I think people had kind of written him off as a as a pay driver. Obviously, he is bringing money, but Ericsson's. Ericsson historically pace hasn't really been his problem stringing everything together has been a bit of a problem but he seems to be building up some nice momentum with Sauber now yeah I think the last three or four races in particular he's he's actually done a really good job and I think he he's one of the key players in this sort of back end of the grid driver market isn't he uh, you know because as you say he's he's doing a good job and he's got a bit of budget so you know you've got him NASA Magnussen Palmer Gutierrez and the two Mano seats, isn't it? So there's still actually seven sort of undecided seats in that that mid to back of the grid. And a lot of a lot of them seem to be kind of looking around, waiting to see what happens. I spoke to Gutierrez at Team Principal of Haas last night, and he was saying, "Well, something's got to happen because obviously they're waiting to see what else happens with." Sort I of found it, I found it bizarre that there was a statement from Magnussen about an offer from Haas. That's not. I I found that really odd to, for yeah, some, a bit to silly be saying season, that in public. Yeah. That's sort of trying to force the issue, maybe. Well, we'll see. It's 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 almost like a big game of kaplunk, isn't it? Someone's waiting for the, the final straw, as it were, Ed. <laughs> to uh, That's the, my worst joke of the weekend, I think. I think the Force India seat is a key one, though, isn't it? Because that is the most competitive seat that is still available. So yeah. I think once once that seat resolves itself... Ultimately, a dri- drivers are all chasing the most competitive car they can get. And that's why you have to go through the market. You know, you look at, right, which is the world championship winning team? That's settled. Then you look at the next one and the next one. The next it's one. Basically, Force India and Renault are the two seats you'd be wanting currently. Yes, they're the most competitive ones. At the, moment. The, the weird thing with Ericsson is, though, he's kind of stuck where he is. Because uh, if, if you do as I did and spend a lot of time looking through companies' house records, you find that basically... Here, the the people who are involved in his management and sponsorship backing are also it, that they either are the people who are now the majority owners of the Sauber team or are closely linked to them. So, would why why would he want to move if if his backers well, own that team? No, I, I I did have a conversation with him about it because he was uh, on my flight between Austin and 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 here, and it sounds like it's actually two separate deals in that. Yes, they they I think they do own the team, the majority share now, but they could potentially sponsor him as an independent deal to go to a team if there's a seat available higher up the grid. And so. there's certainly some talks going on. So I agree that that seems the most logical thing to happen. But you know, but if this is Formula One. There's no yeah, logic in it. Exactly. But if you're Marcus Ericsson, you can get into a Force India. Then you and your backers probably think, yeah, I'd rather have that than a than a Sauber with a with a year old engine next year. And he, he's certainly been really impressive in the last few Grand Prix, maximising the potential. But I, th- I thought Julian Palmer did uh, a decent job in a car that was pretty ropey. It was horrible, wasn't it? I remember when you were watching Trackside, it couldn't get the nose in and the rear wallows. Yeah, no, yeah. Did, it's just horrible. And out, out of six, they they were a good ten metres later than everyone else on on the throttle because it was just so unstable. And certainly, Magnussen seemed to be struggling with the tyre, so he did a couple of stops. Couldn't get any of his sets. Yeah, I mean, Palmer fourteen seconds ahead of Magnussen at the end. So that's you know that's good performance from the back of the grid. Bearing in mind he didn't qualify. What about Haas? That was you know a <laughs> they really seem, odd yeah, weekend. Yeah. They really they struggled. Them. They seem to have no idea what what they were doing. I mean, I asked many people there this, and no one really gave a clear answer. I just wonder whether the unusual conditions, obviously the altitude, so you got less dense air, the weird track surface. 
We had some interesting track temperature variation. It's almost hitting all those sweet spots for an inexperienced team to to mess up. Obviously, Grosjean changed his floor to an older spec after qualifying. He said the car was just unbalancing all over the place. That we had didn't... the duct, brake ducts as well, yeah, yeah, which yeah. was interesting to speak to Roman about that um, after the session where they decided to take those off. And he was almost triumphal. He had he had this sort of note of "I told you so" uh, <laughs> in, in in his voice because uh, the they were they were the ducts that had been used in China where he had an absolute dog of a race as well but this is uh, I think Haas will they'll learn from this they just have to put this down as a weekend where they didn't get the best out of the package you know, it wasn't long ago they were, they were cars in Q3 at Suzuka so you, do, do I, feel, I feel that's been the story of the season for Haas they've done a, a fantastic job for their first year yep. you know, yes they've got loads of stuff from Ferrari to help them but obviously the thing that they can't shortcut is building that experience there's good people there but as a team the knowledge the understanding they've not always got the best out of the car in fact, more often than not, you probably argue they haven't. But there are always going to be weekends like this one. To me, the most worrying factor, if I was Gunther Steiner or Ayo Komatsu, you know, anyone at Haas, would be trying to draw a line across the season and trying to understand why they were fast. Because to understand why you're slow, you also need to understand why you're fast. And, I, you know, I think it's it's very easy when you've had a good weekend to just sort of, strut the strut and say oh we've had a great weekend but you you do need to understand what circumstances led to that and you know there are three weekends that stand out don't they Bahrain particularly in um, Suzuka and arguably Melbourne because the race pace in Melbourne was very good so you like why could they be competitive there and then it hasn't happened elsewhere and I don't think they actually know the answers you know when we went to Baku, I went on a track walk with Roman. And when we were going around, he said, oh, we're going to be good here because we need higher temperatures. You know, higher temperatures are exactly what we need. Last few races, Canada, etc., been too cold for us. And then they were rubbish in Baku. And then I, sa- I saw him on Saturday evening. I said, what happened then? He said, oh, I don't know. And just goes to show really that tricky. Formula One's not a binary, linear business. Is it? Yeah, but you do need to understand it. You know, and, and I know speaking to people like Paddy Lowe that they spend... Uh, you know, a, a lot of time understanding, you know, even at at the level they're at, the dominance they've had, on a weekend where, say, a Red Bull or Ferrari get close to them, they spend a lot of time trying to understand why that particular circuit, those chasing teams were closer to them. Um, and, and they do try and, you know, get conclusive results with a lot of analysis. And, and perhaps that's the difference between a big team and a smaller team. You know, they've got more people, more resources. You can allocate more people into the performance department in terms of analysis. So maybe there's an element of that. It's one of the things that, that Gary Anderson, the, the former Jordan technical director, who's our technical uh, technical expert at Autosport, often says that nobody knows 100% of what makes their car work or not work. You know, the best teams know close to that, but there's always little areas where something changes and the performance sensitivities throw it into an area where it exposes a weakness. But you feel that kind of Haas is in that area where it's got the the least understanding of what's working, what's not working yeah, than, and, and, than anyone else. So it's it's just about that knowledge, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, next year will be a massive challenge and I'm, I'm really interested to see where they build from this year. Um, you know, I remember Jackie Stewart saying the second season is always the hardest one because... You know, in year one, they've had a year of build-up of no track activity. Now, all of a sudden, they're splitting resource between running on track and then building a car for the biggest regulation change that we've seen in, in a very long time. And that's it's going to be a big, big challenge for them. And so looking back up at the front, we've now got two races to go, Brazil and Abu Dhabi. Rosberg's got a 19-point lead. He can still afford to finish behind Hamilton. In fact, he could drop to third in one of those races and still win it. But Hamilton's on a roll. Now he's got those two wins, so so how do we see it going? Well, first of all, if, if Rosberg wins in Brazil, he will be world champion. So, you know, to me, that's the the actually the first standout statement going into the last two races. He's going to he's going to want to do that so much, isn't Absolutely. it? That, that would you answer so many questions. Well, you won't. You, no one wants to be world champion by finishing second, do they? I'll take it. I'm <laughs> imagine Kroon would have done. Yeah, no, I mean, you, you'll take it rather than not, but you'd also rather get it done and dusted because, you know, it's only two years ago, Rosberg went to Abu Dhabi with the admittedly outside chance of being world champion. And then he had that problem with the power unit, didn't he? And he just sort of drove around slowly. And then double points made it 
it's a massive gap at the end, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, but to be to his credit, he said, "I want to get this car to the end of the race." Yeah, I mean, it was a bit of a, a pointless exercise, but he was never what, what was going to happen. You know, he was never going to beat Lewis on points. But I think that will be in the back of his mind. So he he will go to Brazil with the with the clear aim of trying to beat Hamilton and becoming world champion, which in itself could be dangerous because he's he's got that position where he can just take it easy if he does a par job the last next two weeks and nothing goes wrong mechanically then he is world champion so yep. the temptation would be strategically and, you'd say well just and just historically do a job. historically since 1990 when we've gone back to this configuration of the sao paulo circuit i think it's got to be the most dramatic grand prix venue we've seen isn't it? in terms of just sheer drama and unpredictable results well, remember, and stuff going yeah. on remember in the 2012 finale when oh yeah vettel turned in on bruno senna yep. spun got got collected and i remember vettel was at the autosport awards a few not many days after and i'm chatting to him there and him just saying as soon as he was hit he thought there was no chance he just sort of carried on he said well I got the car pointing in the right direction. I'm going to try just in case. It was a, it was probably the mindset. It was a bit like Rosberg at Abu Dhabi. It's like, well, I'm not giving up. And obviously it, it happened to stay on board. But that, that tells you how fine the margins can be. You can have rain there, all sorts of things. So it, it's, uh, it's almost the worst. I mean, 2008 was arguably the the best championship conclusion in F1 history. Yeah, well, that, my hands were shaking after that. Well, well and that was, that was because McLaren played it too conservatively in that race. They put themselves on the bubble, and it was unbelievable. I, I, for a feature for Autosport, I happened to be in the garage for the closing stages of that race, which made an unbelievable story. And just these ebbs and flows, the late pit stops, passed by Vettel, and passing uh, Glock on the, on the slicks. So it shows how difficult it is, because you can, on the one hand, you say, well, be conservative, but then if you're conservative, you don't give yourself a cushion. But if you go aggressive and try to give yourself more of a cushion or force the issue, then you run the risk of making mistakes. And like Rosberg will be thinking about this. He'll try not to, but this will be in his mind all the time. And that's when things start to go wrong, when you start thinking, oh, should I be doing that rather than just doing your job? And there's always a risk of rain as well, isn't it? There's always, at this time of the year in, in Sao Paulo, there's always a risk of rain. And, and and sometimes you get the complete deluge, like we've seen you know, in the past. But sometimes you just get that little drizzle and that sprinkling of rain where you, like 2008, where it's like, oh, do we go slicks? Do we stay on intermediates what, what do you do and you know I, I think it'll be great for formula one to get a race like that i think it'll be you know you get a lot of drama and then you've got the hard chargers like ricardo verstappen you got a frustrated sebastian vettel who hasn't won a race in a long time the, the fact that we're all screwing our eyes up and raking our memories here at half seven in the morning uh to to think of what when it was just goes to show how long ago it yeah. was so, you know, he's going to be after a result, and they've got nothing to lose. They've got absolutely nothing to lose. It's the people who've got nothing to lose are the people you have to be the most scared of when you're trying to nail a world championship down. And, and there's often a lot of, not necessarily desperate people, but there's a lot of people at the end of the season who, yeah, don't have anything to play for. They've got a few things to prove, or they're just frustrated, and they think, let's just go all out for this. And and they know, you know, if you're sat behind Rosberg, let's say Rosberg's running second and you're Max Verstappen, and you think, yeah, I fancy a bit of second place. You know that Rosberg knows he can afford to slip to third, but that he won't want to. So you're just sort of thinking, well, he's going to be second-guessing himself. Is he just going to let me through? Or And then the driver gets in two minds, and you think, well, there we go. And, you know, Nico's not the, not the best in wheel-to-wheel combat. The last thing he needs is other factors complicating the mindset. Personally, I'd like to see, you know, Lewis win in Brazil, Nico finish, you know, f- fourth or fifth or yeah, something. Set up, an, set up a winner takes all. Set up all. a winner takes all. You know, you want to see a winner takes all Abu Dhabi weekend. It'll be great for the show. It'll be great for Formula One. And then whoever wins that in Abu Dhabi, whether it's Nico, whether it's Lewis, will be a deserving world champion. You know, I'm not saying if Nico wins in Brazil, he will be undeserving. Absolutely not. You know, the man, you know, has won, would have won 10 Grand Prix if he won in Brazil. So, but... I think a winner takes all is just great for Formula One. Well, there's lots to look forward to in Brazil in just under two weeks' time with the uh, the penultimate episode in the battle for the World Championship. So thanks very much to Stuart Codling of F1 Racing, who will be getting back to completing his packing, and Karun Chandok, who I think will be, will be exploring the world-famous sandwiches, perhaps before flying a little bit later on. Check out autosport.com for all the latest news and updates from the world of Formula One, and Autosport Magazine out on Thursday, which will have an in-depth report on all the goings-on in Mexico. We'll be back next week with another Autosport podcast.
music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo music. Redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino style games to choose from, you too could win life changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to chumbacasino.com and give them a world. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.